What a blessing it is to get to be here this morning. I'm looking around. I don't see Dale Hearn this morning. He's probably sick of the fact that his team is not playing in the Sweet 16 at 1.30 today. Sorry, Naz, I will not be going to see the Apostle Paul. I have a little date with about five Red Raiders who are going to teach Villanova why the ball goes in the basket Texas style. Coach Max came up to me this morning. He says, you realize you shouldn't be watching that game. Your team is so going down. And I said, I know, but I can taunt beforehand. And then afterwards, by the time we have class in two Sundays, people will have forgotten. So that was my taunt beforehand. Now we will get into class. I need your help about something. So I've got the Torah devotional book. It's almost finished. I'm winding down the days of December. I hope to have it turned in on time, March 31st. I'm really stoked about it. Every time I start thinking, well, I can be a day or two later than what I've committed to, I come across one of those passages that says, you better do what you committed to, and I have to write a devotional on it. I think, okay, well, I'll stay up and get back on schedule. So I am on schedule right now and will be, God willing, that means that next Sunday we don't have class, as Brent explained, because it's Easter Sunday. But the following Sunday, we're ripe to start a new series in here. Now, I want to do a little independent polling right now to see what you may be interested in, because I've got several different ideas that I'd like to do. So here's what I'd like you to do. If You've got an opinion. When I ask the question, I want you to hold your hand up. If you're watching this live streaming on the internet, hold your hand extra high or I'm going to have trouble seeing it. That's a joke. See, because really I can't see. It's a one way. Anyway, one possibility would be we do a series on the Sermon on the Mount, something many people study often in Christianity and in churches, but we would really dig down kind of deep and, and try to find some nuggets that maybe you don't typically get when you just study the Sermon on the Mount. So that is a possibility. A second possibility would be to dig deeply into a book called Philippians, which is one of Paul's. We started digging a little bit into Colossians, but we couldn't really dig in too deep because we had six weeks to do it. And it really takes about two to three months. It would take us up to summer to get that done right. So that's a second possibility. There are other possibilities. I could finish my Jesus in the Old Testament series that we interrupted because we did uh, the Colossians stuff here. Um, so those are the three I want to put out. If you've got something else you'd be interested in me doing, you need to email me and give me your reasons why in the next couple of days. And if you do and they outweigh what we decide right now, then we'll do that instead. You've just got to convince me. So Sermon on the Mount, showing of hands. Okay, we could keep attendance with that. Um, the second one was... Philippians. 
Oh, some of y'all would come for both. But that Philippians seems to have more than the Sermon on the Mount. Sorry, Jesus. And, um, uh, and then the third one is Jesus in the Old Testament finishing that. Ooh, that seems to be about the same. Okay, then here's what we're going to do. We're going to do one of those. Last two. And I will, uh, uh, unless you got something you want to weigh in strong on. But this morning, we're going to Torah devotionals, and we're going to throw some more out there. We're going to start with a passage out of Psalm 119. Psalm 119 says, ooh, there we go. Oh, how love Actually, I know it from this song. Remember that song, Mom, that we sang growing up in church? Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation night and day. Did anybody sing that song? Okay, well, some of you did. So that's the version I know. It's the song version. But the English Standard Version says, Oh, how I love your law. Law, that Hebrew word, Torah. It is my meditation all the day. The Torah, again, is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The first five books of the Old Testament are the Jewish law. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Now, I think that's a marvelous motivation for us to meditate and, and, and consider and find devotional life in the law. The law was set up for a number of different reasons. I digress for just a moment, but hey, y'all are here. It's awkward for you to get up and walk out this early. <laughs> that means it's time to digress. Why the law? Why did God give the law? Anybody? Oh, me on the front row. Okay, I'll answer that. I can give you three good reasons that we have the law in the Old Testament. Reason number one, society needed it. You couldn't have the Israelite government without a law. We don't exist without a law. You have no law, Greg. What are we called? anarchists. You can't have anarchy. You got to have something. People have to have some type of, of binding authority. So Israel's laws were laws for the country. It was their penal code. It was their criminal code. It was their civil code. It was the law that kept society from falling apart. I'll give you a second reason. A second reason was to express God and theology. We find in the law good precepts and concepts that help us understand the character and nature of God. It's one reason in Christianity we have a tendency to bolt from the law and not spend too much time studying it, I think. Because we really love the grace in which we stand. And you start reading the law and you just read all of these pretty strict things where it's very clear that God expects perfection. 
And he does. And it's very uncomfortable because I don't know about you. But I ain't got it. Which gives me two choices. I can either change the law, water it down, explain away, so that I am good, or I can die under the weight of the law. Which brings me to my third reason for the law. So that we will die under the weight of the law. Because when we die under the weight of the law, when we realize how perfect God is, when we realize that perfection that God requires of us, then we are desperate and we see Jesus, our Savior. Because God does require perfection. And that's where he finds it. Jesus, our Savior, is the perfect one. All I got to do is be there with him. If I'm with him, I have his perfection. And so in that sense, the law points me to Jesus. Because it shows me my need and it also calls him out. And we'll see both of those as we look at these things this morning. So if we go back to the PowerPoint, let me give you one more passage out of that Psalm 119. I not only love the law, I'm not only meditating on it all day long, but the law of God's mouth is better to me than thousands of pieces of gold and silver. I mean, think about that. Think about that for a moment. I mean, honestly, thousands of pieces of gold and silver just for the first five books out of the Bible, can't we do okay without those? I mean, most of those things, you find it in the rest of the Bible anyway. We're New Testament Christians. Can't we do without the first five books? I mean, we're talking, I'm not talking hundreds of pieces. Okay, this is not like, oh, gee, there's a stack of a hundred pieces of gold. I'm talking thousands. Thousands of pieces of chunks of metal don't even belong in the same scale group as one word out of God's word to his people. It's not even in the same. I'm, heaven forbid. The word of God has built civilizations and caused them to crumble more than any chunk of metal ever would. So with that, let's study and meditate on the law for the next 35 minutes together, okay? First one, you ready? Idolatry and cancer. How many of you want cancer? Good. Right answer. You're paying attention. How many of you want idolatry? Good. Right answer. Now let's talk about it. Here's your passage. It's from Deuteronomy 12, 2 through 3. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations 
whom you shall dispossess, served their gods. On the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree, you'll tear down their altars, you'll dash in pieces their pillars, and you'll burn their Asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. Here is what the context is of that passage. Let's start there. Israel is going to be going into the promised land, into Canaan. And Moses is giving them speeches, both Moses speaking and God speaking through Moses. And the Canaanites are not without religion. Very few people in the world are without religion. There is something within all of us that's hardwired to seek God. No less true for the Canaanites. But God had gone a step beyond anything humanity had experienced on Mount Sinai when he revealed himself to Moses and Israel in a greater way with a greater understanding than anybody had ever had of the one true God. And God did not want that watered down and God did not want that diluted. Israel was to be a beacon for the world to teach the world about the one true God. And so God said, when you go into the land, you've got to destroy all of the places of worship of the, the nations, the peoples, the groups you're going into. Oftentimes they were on hilltops based upon the idea that the gods of the heavens will hear you better if you get closer to them can see you better if you're a little bit closer. Because the gods of the Canaanites, like the gods of the Greeks and the gods of the Romans, heavens, like the Norse gods, were just superhumans. They basically had gone to Chick-fil-A and supersized the meal. It's the extra large waffle fries. So they had all of the human emotions supersized human power supersized human shortcomings as well and heaven knows we can't hear as well as we would like sometimes heaven knows we can't see especially in the era before these as well as we'd like sometimes and so the, the, the people believed God had the same problems. Well, the God of Israel was not short of sight. The God of Israel was not deaf. The God of Israel was not ignorant of what was going on in the world. You didn't have to jump up on a hill and flag him down and say, Hey, I need some attention here. The God of Israel not only knew everything going on, but knew what was going to happen and had control. And so he says, you go to every high place and you destroy any, any concept of me that's less of God's uh, 
that's less than me, God, the true God. Cut down the Asherim, the Asherah poles, the places of worships under the trees, the carved images. Destroy them. And the reason why is because if you don't destroy the gods that are false, the false gods will destroy you. They're a cancer. And you got to cut them out. What, how do they treat cancer? You can cut it out. You can pour chemotherapy and poison it. Kill it. Or you can burn it. Radiation. Zap it. But that's about it. You cut it out. You, you kill it. Or you burn it. And God says that's what you've got to do to the idols. Now, most of us today don't have a problem with Asherim poles. I come from Lubbock. We don't worship on the high places. I've got some friends who stood on a can of tuna once and claimed it was a high place. Y'all know my favorite saying, Lubbock. It's so flat, you can watch your dog run away for three days. <laughs> That's not real. Dun, 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 dun. But we are playing in the... Today. Anyway, not that I worship the matador. Um, the, the, there, there's not... A problem typically with us with this, I, uh, um, a specific idol in that sense. But don't think we don't have idols in our lives. Because an idol is whatever you let take God's place. Do you trust in your... Do you trust in your money? Do you trust in your popularity? Are you willing to give up your, your soul for the comfort of someone's arms? Are you willing to, to give up your, 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 your convictions and your, 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 what, what you really believe because you just think that maybe... You can have that anyway and do something else. Anything we put in the place of God is an idol. And it's a cancer. Because it will destroy you. It will grow in you. And do no good. And you need to cut it out. You need to burn it. You need to kill it. You need to do whatever you need to do. Because there is a single place in your life for a God and it needs to be the one true God and if you've got a problem at home the solution starts on your knees before the one true God it doesn't mean he won't send you to good counselors it doesn't mean he won't won't, won't walk with you through fire it, it's not a magic pill that dissolves instantly and within 15 seconds your 
home indigestion is gone. Sometimes the problems are so deeply rooted that God's going to have to dig and work on them for a long time. But that's the solution. If your problem's at work, the solution is not to do something underhanded, illegal, backbiting, backstabbing, Machiavellian. The solution is to get on your knees before God and ask God what you need to do. And let Him teach you where His plan is for your life in that situation. Whatever it is, if your struggle right now is your health. I'm not saying don't trust your doctors. I'm not saying if your doctor says, hey, you need to take this medicine. Don't look at the doctor and say, no, I'm going to trust in the Lord for the healing. Remember, God's the one who gave you the doctor. God's the one who made medicine. But it starts by you laying it down before the Lord and asking for his healing. And if he wants to do it through the doctor, praise the Lord. If he doesn't heal you, praise the Lord. Because we're about something more than our plan We're about His. And if suffering does not get lifted by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, if suffering God does not walk you through it and show you a way out, then know that you're suffering because it's necessary within God's plan. And at that point, you're suffering for the cause of Christ. And it may not be fun, but you can take a deep, satisfied joy that you've been called to do such. I know that sounds harsh, but that's, that's what God is about. He is about trying to rid our lives of idols and put us totally dependent upon Him. And when we're totally dependent upon Him, doesn't mean He doesn't use the world around. All of this is His. Doesn't mean he doesn't want you searching and seeking and, and, and get on the internet and do everything you can do to figure things out. Your brain is his. It's just a recognition that he's got seniority and it all comes under him. So let's cut, burn, destroy anything that stands where God should stand in our lives, okay? Devotional number two. What does God require of you? There's a marvelous passage in, in uh, the prophet Micah, Micah 6 verse 8, where Micah asks that question and he answers to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. But that question before Micah gets asked back here in the Torah. Here it is. And now Israel, what does, whoops, the Lord has somehow come out of that. What does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Now look at that carefully and note the progression. 
It's very interesting how this lays out. Starts out step number one. Fear the Lord your God. Fear the Lord your God. You want to know how to fear God? Get a glimpse of Him. If we have a glimpse of God, we will understand in awe and we will fear. The God is not what we imagine Him to be. He exceeds our imagination. And He is real. This is a God who made not just the 2,000 stars you see at night. This is the God who made the 2,000 stars followed by thousands of zeros to the best of our knowledge. Googleplexes of stars. This is the God who can see in the black hole that astrophysicists say no one can see in because the gravity is too intense for any light to escape. He doesn't need the light to see. This is the God who understands. Did you know that there are like a just billion plus cells in your body? I think it may even be a trillion. I don't know. What does it matter at that point? It's more than you or I will count. Did you know that in your cells you have a nucleus? And the nucleus is the, <laughs> I have to be careful, a bunch of you people in here will correct me if I don't say this right, but the nucleus has some of the blueprints of life. That's where you're going to find your, your DNA. And so the nucleus is protected. Not just anything gets in the nucleus. Not just anything gets to tinker with your DNA. But did you know in your body you have inside the cytoplasm, the, the part of the cell around the DNA, this little thing that's abbreviated as a PEPAR. Here, hang on. We can, we can magnify that cell. A PEPAR. A peroxisome proliferated activated receptor or something like that. You have different kinds of PPAR. There's a PPAR delta. There's a PPAR gamma. These PPARs are so small. Scientists discovered them not by seeing them, but by figuring out they must exist. And they do. They're in there. And they're like ambassadors into the nucleus. They're allowed to go into the nucleus. And they can take a plus one. So a lot of people have figured this out. And so they've even made drugs. That will attach themselves to the PPAR. So that the PPAR can take the drug as a plus one. Into the nucleus. And tinker with the DNA. Maybe make it more receptive to insulin if you're diabetic. That's the way some insulin drugs work. 
or insulin-enhancing in, in drugs work, I should say. These PPARs, you got them, so do guinea pigs, so do rats, so do dogs. Didn't even know they existed till a few decades ago. And they, they, they really only figured it out because they, they, it, it, was a, it was a logical deduction. It wasn't a visual one. Did you know that God knows about every PPAR and every cell in your body along with 8 billion other people in the planet? When you understand that God's got all of that and that's nothing more than a hangnail on his hand, That all of the universe is in the palm of his hand. And that that God is a perfect God who requires perfection. To be with him. That God exists. He's a real God. He is an entity. He is a God who has character and personality. You want to be with him? You have to be perfect. You can't be with God and be darkness because he is light. You can't be with God and be lies because he is truth. You can't be with God and be selfish because he is utterly agape love others. Anything less than that can't exist with God. And when you realize that's who God is, then you fear the Lord. When you realize what God can do, then you fear the Lord. So if we go back to the PowerPoint, step one, fear the Lord your God by knowing who He is. Then you try and walk in all of His ways. Don't make a mistake. And I want to tell you, when you fear the Lord and you try to walk in His ways, you will fall repeatedly. The best you do, you'll be doing it because you're trying to be selfish. And you fell, by definition. See, what happens? Then we find God's mercy. Then we find the mercy of God through Jesus. I told you the three reasons, three good reasons that God gave the law. It's all right here. You learn who God is, you try to walk in his ways and you fall, and then you find his mercy in Jesus. Because this God who's just and who's consistent and who's unchanging and who's perfect and who is fearsome is also a God who loves you enough to pay the price for every wrong you've ever done. And that's step three. We love him because we see his love for us and he teaches us his love. This is what God requires. You fear him. Try to walk in his ways. Fall in love with him, with his mercy in Jesus. And then, and then you can serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and you can keep his commandments. But you're doing it because he loves you. And you love him. 
It's not to, to, to earn his love. Can't do that. His love is a part of his character. You can receive his love. You can't earn it. But boy, as you learn who he is and you try to walk in his ways so you see him better and you see your own shortcomings but you understand his love for you and Jesus and you love him back, then all of a sudden serving him with all of your heart and with all of your soul and, and doing what he wants you to do, hey, that's easy. What does he require of you? The key to that is find the love. Find his love for you and find your love for him. Everything else flows from that. Devotional number three. Don't fear the big guy. Don't fear the big guy. Here's the passage. When you go out to war against your enemies and you see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Hear, O Israel, Shema Yisrael, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear. Do not panic. Do not be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. Whew! You got enemies today? You got battles coming up this week? I got several people from my law firm who are in here. I got Dr. Bob. I've got Sam Taylor. I've got Rick Meadow. I've got Tim Wilson. I've got a, a number of people. We fight for a living it's what we do. And you say, yeah, well, I don't see any bruises. Look closer. <laughs> and we fight monsters and giants some days. And I get asked, I was, uh, I was speaking in front of uh, four or five hundred lawyers in Virginia on one day this week. I lose track of the days. And part of, I, I, it was a three-hour deal a presentation, but, but for 30 minutes of it, I was interviewed by a psychologist lawyer. And in the interview, I was asked a question. Why are, aren't you scared going up against these folks? I mean, this is, why aren't you scared? They've got more money than, than the federal government. They've got an ability to do some nasty things. Why aren't you scared? Give me a break. They are like a drop in the ocean of power compared to our God. My goal is to do right by my God. And if that means I beat the giants, praise the Lord. If that means I lose to the giants, praise the Lord. My job's, I, that, that, that's it. You got giants in your life. You don't have to be a trial lawyer to have giants. Your giants may be nothing more than a school assignment. And I'm talking now if you're a teacher. 
<laughs> Students too. No. So the best story I know, I just love, and I got to tell you. Um, fast forward from the time Moses is doing this. Another four or five hundred years. And Israel's finally picked a king. They picked this guy because he was really a tall dude. Tall and good looking. Shaul was his name. And Shaul was tall and good looking, but he didn't necessarily have a heart for the Lord. And Shaul took the Israelites into battle against this sea people that had invaded and taken the coastal lands. They were called Philistines. And the sea people, the Philistines, were on one side of the Elah Valley while Shaul and his Israelite army were on the other side. Now they didn't have rations the way we think of it with the military, supply lines the way we think of it. You kind of brought your own stuff. You brought your own weapons. You brought your own food. And some of the fellows that were serving in Shaul's army, the Israelites, were brothers who had a baby brother back at home tending to the sheep. His name was David. And David's dad said to him, Hey, your brothers are fighting over in the valley of Elah. I need you to take them some food. And I want you to check on them and see how they're doing. So David goes to the valley of Elah. Now what he did not know, this young shepherd boy, was that every day, the Philistine army would send this massive, honking, big dude named Goliath to taunt and provoke and intimidate the Israelite army. Big, honking dude would come out and he'd shout out, Hey! What's the point in a bunch of manslaughter? Armies killing armies, people dying, widows back home, parents losing their kids. That's not going to do good for anybody. I'm one guy. You got a whole army. You pick out one guy. Send him to fight, mano a mano. If y'all win, we capitulate. If we win, you capitulate. Well, Shaul, the king of Israel, was the tallest guy in Israel. That's how he got to be king. But he wasn't as tall as Goliath. And he was petrified. And so was the rest of the Israelite army. Now it's into that scenario that David comes. And David's talking to his brothers. How's it going? Dad wants to know. Here's some food. Got you some food. About that time, big old Goliath comes down. To, and Goliath says, hey. And he pronounces the big taunt, the big uh, uh, provocation, the intimidation speech. David, 
Let's just pause for a moment for this story. We'll come right back to it. Look at this passage one more time. When you go out to war against your enemies, you see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own or maybe a soldier larger than your own. Don't be afraid of them. It's the Lord your God with you who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When you're drawing near for battle against your enemies, don't let your heart faint. Don't fear. Don't panic. Don't be in dread of them. The Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. Now let's resume our regularly scheduled broadcast. David is there when Goliath comes out with his provocation and intimidation. David elbows his brothers. Starts snortling. <laughs> and he says, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would taunt the armies of the Lord God? And the brothers are, Shut up, David. Don't... <laughs> Don't say that too loud, man. This guy's already kind of mad at us, and you just don't need to be shouting that. David says, oh, who, oh, is there a line to fight him? I want to get in the line. Who's, where, where's the line? Uh, well, there's not really a line, David. We're all scared to death of this guy. Did you see him? How's your vision? David says, hey, I'm in. I got this one. And everybody says, Okay. Okay. They take David, David, to Shaul, the king. Shaul says, I mean, you lose, no harm, no foul. You know, it's not like we have to give up if you lose. It's not like, oh, gee, now you've breached your contract, Israel. We're going to fight you. They're going to fight us anyway, no downside. Doesn't take a rocket scientist kink to figure this one out. But Saul does want him to have his best shot. So the king says, put my armor on him. Let's at least give him the best armor. So David gets the sword, he gets the helmet, he gets the breastplate, he gets the shield. Well, he can't even stand up. Remember, Shaul's the biggest one of all of Israel. David's still a shepherd boy. So David takes it all off. Shaul says, what are you doing, man? You, you, this, that's, that's the best armor we got. David says, I haven't tested this. But I've tested the Lord. So I'll be okay. And he goes down and he picks up five smooth stones from the stream bed there. And the rest is history. Because God was with him. And when God is with you, you don't need to fear the big guy. You don't need to. All right, we got three more minutes. We're going into the lightning round. Are you ready? Lightning round. Bam! Bruce Springsteen. Prove it all night. You want it. You take it. You pay the price. You want it. You take it. But you pay the price. Don't think you, the, the song ends with you want it, you take it. See, I'm setting before you today. Oops. There we go. Hold on. I got it. 
Got it backwards. See, eh, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse. If you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from them that I'm commanding you today to go after other gods you've not known. You got a choice. That's the choice. You want it, you take it. You pay the price. Well, we live under grace. That's fine. There's still the principle, and it's still valid. You still, if you want to dance, you got to pay the band. Don't do the crime if you can't do the time. All the rest of those sayings, what goes around comes around. You reap what you sow. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. You will reap what you sow. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap that. And I'm not making this up. I'm quoting Paul out of Galatians. That message doesn't get lost on this side of Calvary. Lightning round. Rex, Lex, or Lex, Rex. Here's the deal. 1215, England's in a state of mess. King John, he's just this horrible little weaselly king. Sorry if he's like able to hear this from the great beyond, but it's true. And uh, King John believes that he can rewrite the laws however he wants to in England. Uh, to pay, to, he can tax however he wants to tax. And so a bunch of nobility in England rebel against him. And he's trying to stifle the rebellion and he's having trouble. But here was his mentality. His mentality was, was Rex Lex. Latin Rex means king. Lex means law. The king is above the law. The king is the law. The king can make the law anything he wants it to be. And the nobles in 1215 made him sign this great charter. Great charter. Great in Latin is magna. Charter is carta. They made him sign the magna carta. Because the truth was, the king is not the law. The law is the king. The king's not over the law. The law is over the king. And it's always been that way. King John should have read Deuteronomy. When the king sits on the throne of his kingdom, and Moses says there's going to be a day where Israel opts for a king. When they change their government and they do that, and he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he's going to write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the priest. Make sure he got it right and didn't change something. It'll be with him. He'll read it all the days of his life that he can learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and by doing them. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers because everybody is under God together in common. That he might not turn aside from the commandments of God to the right hand or to the left hand so that he can continue along in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. The king was never supposed to be above the law. Never. And the basis of that is this. We don't have kings in the U.S. of A., but the principle's the same. So that he might not be above his brothers. What God is saying is, if you'll read what his word is and you'll understand who God is, you'll understand we are to treat other people right, whether we're a king or a subject. 
It, we don't treat people differently based upon how much money they make. We don't treat people differently based on their education, based on their skin color, based on their hair color or lack thereof. We don't. We treat everybody with the kindness and the love and the seriousness with which God gives us this life. And we're out of time, so I can't tell you, but Deuteronomy did say, keep your eyes peeled, someone's coming. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. To him you shall listen. But at the end we read, there's not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, to all of his servants, to all his land. None of them with the mighty power, the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sights of Israel. Yeah, keep your eyes peeled, the law says, because someone's coming. Jesus, the Messiah, who can do everything that Moses did and more. Who not only can give the law, but live up to it. Who not only will die, but be resurrected. And will take us to Him. Who not only will intercede for the people by killing an ox, but will be the ox that is killed. And that is another reason to spend so much time in the, the, the Torah because these devotionals point you to the Messiah who's coming. Can I bless you in the name of Jesus? And I pray you'll have a good week and that next uh, we'll see each other in two weeks. Lord, thank you so much for the chance to read through your word. Thank you for the magnificent way you revealed yourself to, to humanity through Israel. Thank you for the Israelites from days gone by who kept your word alive for thousands of years, Father. And thank you for Jesus who's written your word on our hearts. Father, I pray that you'll bless everybody who hears this message. If I mess stuff up, fix it. Make it sharp and penetrating so that it convicts us of who you are and how we can better love and serve you. We pray these things in your son's most holy name. Amen. Amen.